1: Seven years ago, Jim Foley became the first American journalist to be executed by the Islamic State group. His beheading, filmed, and uploaded online shocked the world. Today, at least 67 Americans are being held against their will. It's
0: becoming ever more dangerous to be a journalist, whether
1: in this country or throughout the world. Attacked, jailed, or killed, violence against journalists has been on the rise around the world. In the past 30 years, more than 1,400 have been killed, with perpetrators rarely being brought to justice. In today's world across the globe, we read stories about journalists being killed in the Ukraine, or a headline of a reporter who was gunned down by a Mexican drug cartel. Anytime a journalist is killed doing their job, it's an assault on the freedom of the press. It is an assault on the truth. In the world today, via social media, we have been desensitized to violence in many forms. Our TV screens scream at us with mass shootings and the belief in what is fact and what is actual truth in America is on shaky ground to say the least. The media we ingest as a country is fractured along political lines and on both the right and the left We have come to accept our own insular version of events but there was a time in america where investigative journalists were conquering heroes ben bradley of the washington post walter cronkite mike wallace and ed bradley of 60 minutes diane sawyer barbara walters
2: this is walter cronkite good night i'm mike wallace Barry Reasoner.
0: Barbara Walters, bring you the news.
2: This is
1: ABC World News with Diane Sawyer. They were news bastions. And in that circle of legends, there was a journalist from Arizona named Don Bowles that made the ultimate sacrifice.
0: Don Bowles is a 47-year-old investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic. He's been working on a series about the Mafia. Today, as he attempted to start his car, a bomb went off. Tonight, Bowles is in critical condition, fighting for his life. Before he lapsed into unconsciousness, he blamed the Mafia and named a suspect.
1: The assassination of an American journalist in the summer of 1976, in the year of my birth, on American soil, was rare, bizarre, and it defies belief. A car bomb is the tactic of a terrorist, a calculated and thought-out plan to maim or kill, but even more, to send a message, a message of fear and intimidation. The assassination of a journalist on American soil had to be the work of sophisticated and calculating individuals who thought that they had enough power to get away with it. It was simply brazen.
0: Bowles died yesterday from injuries he suffered while investigating the mafia. Bill Rediker has a report. His doctor said he had never seen a more heroic fight for life. But after 11 days of hospitalization during which both legs and an arm had to be amputated, Don Bowles died. June 2nd, he had gone to a hotel to meet an informant, a meeting that didn't take place. It was a setup. And when Bowles returned to his car, a remote-controlled bomb exploded under the driver's seat. To the first half on the scene, Bowles mentioned three things. The Mafia, a company suspected of land fraud, and John Adamson. Adamson, known principally for racetrack connections, was taken in for questioning. Shortly after Bowles' death Sunday, Adamson was charged with murder. Police say that is just the beginning of an investigation that could have broad implications, both for organized crime and politicians involved in land deals.
1: The surprising parts of this killing of Don Bowles was the last words that came out of his mouth: Mafia, emprise, and one individual named John Adamson. Now this is Arizona, and maybe you thought it was the land of snowbirds and palm trees. A desert with sleepy strip malls. But starting in the 1950s, Arizona became a destination for mafia families from New York, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Vegas, and Los Angeles. They came to hide out, make some scratch, and enjoy the sun.
0: When a Phoenix newsman, Don Bowles, was murdered last summer while investigating a land fraud scandal, reporters from across the country went to that state to conduct their own investigation of scandals in Arizona. We have been able to demonstrate uh, that Arizona is facing a massive problem with organized crime. We have been able to document who those
2: people are and what they are doing.
1: The story that Don Bowles was pursuing must have ruffled some feathers inside the corridors of power of organized crime. Or maybe he stumbled upon another criminal scheme that included dirty cops, land barons, politicians, and the good old boy network.
0: Bowles had given up investigative reporting eight months ago, saying the work was too frustrating. There had been threats on his life. But a telephone call lured him here to the Hotel Clarendon June 2nd. An informant had promised to meet him here with information he claimed linked Senator Barry Goldwater and Congressman Sam Steiger to an Arizona land fraud scheme.
1: The story to tell here is very complex. And some of the names involved were recognized on a national level. For example, the conservative bulwark of Barry Goldwater, arguably the most powerful Arizona politician ever. As far as land fraud schemes, It's a part of the criminal lexicon that I know nothing about. But if there ever was a place with vast swaths of land, it's the desert landscapes of Arizona. I have a feeling when you start to talk about land deals or land fraud schemes, you're talking big money, big power, and shady characters that run the gamut. For this investigation, I had to bring in my ace, part researcher, and part true crime savant. I like to call him the Greek. So I think what's important with the Bulls case is we have to take it piece by piece. Okay. So at this point, I know you have done so much research, you've talked to so many people, you've interviewed so many people that your knowledge base is incredible. I don't have anywhere near the knowledge that you have. And secondarily to that, We are reinvestigating this, so we got to take it piece by piece. So so here's the first thing I want to start with is when you started to research this, tell me what you started to realize about your personal connection to the case.
2: Well, I'll start off with this. Um, Don Bowles was murdered 250 yards from my childhood home literally 200 yards from where I was growing up at the time. We had just gotten home from the hospital, my baby sister had just been born, and this uh, nationally respected journalist is bombed where I go and ride my bicycle every day and play in the parking lot. Um, So that's, it, it was always weirdly kind of in the back of my mind as like from the time that I was five, six years old. Uh, growing up in the family restaurant business in downtown Phoenix, my father was, uh, I wouldn't say they were close friends, but they were definitely friends. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Kemper Marley, a liquor and land magnate here in town, who uh, was always connected to the Bulls murder, The, uh, according to Phoenix PD. Bowles was murdered because of an article he wrote about Kemper Marley that embarrassed him and caused everything to be set in motion. So as a little kid, Kemper Marley's literally patting me on the head at the restaurant while I'm sitting at the counter eating cheese crisps every day, you know. Uh, Then as I get a little bit older, I end up going to school with the children of Max Dunlap the only man who died in prison uh, convicted of ordering the killing of Don Bowles. So I'd always tangentially been kind of related to this case whether I knew it or not growing up. And uh, you know growing up in Phoenix everybody knew who Don Bowles was Uh, that's of my age because it was a story that was just splashed across every news report and newspaper for years and years on end. So I was always interested in it uh, but I had always I'd grown up based on the assumption that the police investigated this case properly. The people that committed it were prosecuted and punished. And, and so that's kind of always how I grew up. They caught them, it's over with, you know. And having
1: said this idea of you're growing up and these guys are sort of patting you on your head, they live down the street, right. they have kids what i actually think is interesting about this story too and we're only going to talk about a little piece of it is you know i think people are used to what the idea of maybe a gangster looks like or maybe the idea of the italian mafia or the idea of organized crime in whatever form i think here in phoenix the guy who probably looks like the average joe could be this mastermind gangster so when you were growing up as a kid what was your relation in, in a sense like did you have any idea that maybe the guy living down the block was connected to organized crime
2: none and, and actually I'm glad you mentioned that when we moved uh, I was in fourth or fifth grade at the time we moved into a new neighborhood where my parents still live today and you know five doors down from us The gentleman, Kemper Marley, that would pat me on the head at the restaurant, was our neighbor. And so growing up, it's funny, we'd ride our skateboards around the neighborhood and things like that, and there were always whispers when we went by Kemper Marley's house. You know, that's Kemper Marley, that's the gangster that killed the reporter. And so, it was always kind of whispers, and you spoke about Kemper Marley in hushed tones, but Like I said, he was just like every other customer at my dad's restaurant. He was, you know, one of, uh, they'd hold their liquor board association meetings there. And, and, I mean, he was just like everybody else. You know, other than the hush tones people spoke about him, uh, he was was just like every other successful businessman in Phoenix, Arizona at the time.
1: So, we're going to get to names like Kemper Marley, like Max Dunlap, But the last thing I wanna cover with you right now is Don Bowles goes into his car, the car bomb goes off. He's able to initially survive that. He's laying on the pavement and he says three things. He says mafia, emprise, and a name John Adamson. So I obviously know what the mafia is. Right. (laughs) Tell me, as clearly as you can. First off, what was Emprise?
2: Emprise was a concession conglomerate. Uh, they were a huge corporation from back east. They had always been rumored to having been involved with organized crime. At some point in, I believe, 1972 they were actually indicted for uh, hiding their association to organized crime. They were a massive company. They ended up uh, renaming and rebranding themselves as Delaware North and they're a billion dollar company now. They are the concessionaire for every national park in our country, for the majority of sports arenas and football stadiums in our country. Uh, At one point in the early 70s, I believe it was Lou Jacobs, the founder of Empire, was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, with the headline "The Godfather of Sports," and this was an investigative piece that looked at mafia connections to Empire. But they were a massive concessionaire conglomerate that also was partnered in the dog racing field out here in Arizona so they were I believe they were part owners of every dog racing track here in Arizona they partnered with the funk family in Arizona to create a monopoly when it came to all the dog racing tracks in Arizona
1: got it got it I mean obviously that's something that we'll get to at a certain point so then let's go to John Adamson okay um explain to me what you know from your work from your investigation who was john adamson
2: he was a local hood uh, he was a local fix-it man he was uh, he had a number of criminal scams that that he would uh, take part in from booting people's cars and then you know ripping them off for the two three hundred dollars to take it off everything from small time crime to more serious accusations. Uh, Neil Roberts, who was an attorney in town who was uh, in the orbit of a lot of these characters that we'll get to later, used to introduce John Adamson around at parties as your friendly neighborhood assassin. Um, John Adamson, it turns out, was also the driver for uh, a gentleman named Carl Vareve, who was part of the Chicago outfit, and he also Uh, will play a role in our story much later on.
1: So basically, adamson for lack of a better word maybe a fix-it guy a gangster connected you know as we know chicago had a a, a massive presence here in, yes. in arizona what, what's adamson look like you see pictures of him like does he look like a tough guy or does no. he look like a goofy motherfucker
2: he looks like a goofy motherfucker <laughs> with glasses he looks like someone who you literally could not pick out of a lineup if you were looking for bad guys the the prototypical bad guys he he, he didn't stand out in any way, shape, or form and I think that's what maybe made him so dangerous. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, the one mistake Don Bowles made throughout this whole process was believing John Adamson was harmless. This was supposed to be the second time he and John Adamson met to discuss information Adamson had and their first meeting, Bowles uh, let slip about some information he was gathering And I believe that is what led to the hasty decision to set up this murder as quickly as possible. We took it all. We brought them
0: to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see.
1: is that right so meaning you feel bulls maybe underestimated adamson maybe became too comfortable with him maybe didn't think he was dangerous or had connections to dangerous people that would go to the extent i mean it, it, it's a drastic measure yeah right i mean yes. for someone to put a car bomb in, in a car in america uh, and kill a journalist there has to be a lot at stake
2: yes right yes it was a loud ugly violent statement to other people don't encroach on certain things in my opinion
1: and the Clarendon hotel at that time talk to me about what type of place was it why would let's call it a a half-baked gangster in bowls meet at a place like the Clarendon was it a family place was it kind of shady what was the Clarendon
2: family place upscale place it was at that time in phoenix that central corridor the midtown phoenix area was the place to be there was no such thing as old town scottsdale or the i mean there was the biltmore area for the upscale crowd but that's really that was kind of the heart of phoenix at the time you had durant's right down the street the the mobbed up steakhouse you had Uh, Neil Roberts, the attorney that I just mentioned, his law offices were literally two, three blocks away, and it was also within eyeshot of a condominium high-rise called the Executive Towers that also will play a bit of a role in the story as we move along. So it was was right in the heart of Phoenix. It was... Again, I mean, Park Central Mall was the shopping mall for people to go to in Phoenix in the 1970s, and it was right across the street. This was as high-profile a place as you could imagine back then.
1: All right, so we'll continue on this investigation, and I'll come back to you in Episode 2 as we start to go deeper into... What I think is best described as like a labyrinth. I mean, even in this interview alone, you've already mentioned four names that we have to understand who they are, who they were affiliated with, who maybe they were working with to really understand uh, who killed Don Bowles and why the narrative of who killed Don Bowles to this day is probably false. You know, I'll check back with you after we head into the next few episodes. Sounds good. To get more insight, we spoke to Arizona Republic writer Richard Ruelas. Decades after the murder of Bowles, long-forgotten tape recordings and documents were uncovered. Here is Ruelas.
0: I had sort of self-assigned myself that every year in June, the anniversary of the bombing, that I would come up with the story about the Bowles bombing just as a way to commemorate it and keep the story alive. So I had given myself that assignment that every year we're going to have a, a Don Bowl story of some type. And so it became sort of a mini beat of mine. And we had stored, the Republic had stored a bunch of file cabinets and documents at a warehouse. And I think they didn't want to pay the bill anymore is my guess, and uh, trying to figure out what was in there, what what's worth preserving, what do we still need. And my editor saw there was a bunch of them that were padlocked shut. So he got a locksmith, cracked him open, and it didn't take too long to realize that these file cabinets were related to Don Bull's. Some of them appeared to be his files. And so he came to me knowing that I was steeped in the case, said, uh, I'd like you to go in there and see what there is, see what we can find if there's a story to be had or whatever it is. So I went down there and started going through the files and I I realized that I probably wasn't the only reporter who's ever gone through these files. Over the decades a lot of people had probably looked through Don Bowles' papers to see if they could get closer to the mystery of you know what he was working on um, or Really, try to look at it through a new angle, um, so I knew that if I was going to do a a story on it, it would have to be something new and unique. But as I was going through the files, I saw a box, and I opened up the box and it was a load of cassette tapes, and I had to find a cassette player first of all uh, but when I found that box full of cassette tapes, I realized, well, no one's probably heard these for decades, and in all the years the Republic has been a newspaper, it's only in recent years that they thought to make anything other than a a print product. So I thought maybe there's a story to be had in these tapes.
1: The reason for unpacking this story now in 2022 is very simple and straightforward. The murder of Don Bowles and all the investigations to date. By the police, by the Arizona Republic, by the Arizona Attorney General, by the state police, and by the FBI is the sheer fact that no one on the side of law enforcement has just told the truth. Imagine that all these years later, who is still to protect? How deep did this story go? And why do some power players inside the state of Arizona still want to hide the facts? hide the truth, or cover up why Don Bowles was killed, who killed him, and who, inside the Phoenix Police Department, facilitated the cover-up. As a storyteller, you can't let what happened to Don Bowles be shrouded in mystery anymore. For the final time, we're here to close the chapter on this dark event in American history and settle all scores. And fascinating enough, Don Bowles, in his files, left behind all the answers, all the information, but it's been under lock and key for the last 30 years inside a library in Arizona.
0: It was certainly exciting to see these tapes. Uh, and I figured because they were within the Bulls collection, they must be related somehow. When I first started playing them, uh, they were very poor audio quality. And I had no idea who was speaking, when they were talking, and what they were talking about. Other than that, it was great. Uh, The first tape I heard, there's just this conversation between two people. And again, it's the kind of conversation you have where you're sort of... I was sort of entering this movie midstream. They already are are in a dialogue about something they both know about. They're not taking the time to catch me, the listener, up decades later. So I'm just trying to parse out what they're saying. Then that conversation ended, and then there was a a pause and some clicks. And then I heard a, a, a higher pitched voice And he said, this is Don Bowles from
1: the Republic. It's rare these days you find a singular story that is interwoven into every possible level of state, city, and federal government. And because Don Bowles worked at the Arizona Republic newspaper, there is a treasure trove of information that leads us to believe they have only been concerned with covering bases and protecting their gilded halls of power there's a sadness in that a sadness that shows once again personal gain was bigger than telling the truth it's a construct that we've gotten used to today in the world we live in no morals no integrity no compass of the actual truth he's the kind
0: of reporter that I get the sense when someone told you, you know, Don Bolson, The Republic is on the line, you smacked your forehead. I think to a, I think almost to a fault, um, he was, he saw bad actors, he saw corruption and it annoyed him to no end. Uh, He, he thought, he had a very high opinion he had very high ideals of what government could do or should do. He really thought that if you're a state lawmaker, or a city councilman, or a government bureaucrat, you should be focused on the public welfare, the public good, and not lining your own pockets. And I think any hint that someone was doing so really struck him to the core. And even to the point where someone tried to explain themselves to him. It's not as bad as you think, Don. Look, here's, here's some, here's some really good reasons. Here's another way to think about it or another way to look at it. He wasn't having it, uh, almost to a fault where I think he pushed a little hard on sources. He was convinced someone was a bad person and nothing would sway him. Uh, there was one interview I listened to. There was a chain of coffee shops. Uh, that was in Phoenix. I remember going to him as a kid. The Hobo Joe's coffee shop and he was convinced the guy was mobbed up and the guy's trying to talk to him and tell him he's not mobbed up and just because I had lunch with a guy you can't paint me with that brush and Bowles would not be moved. As time went on it turns out yes he was very mobbed up (laughs) and Bowles was right to be suspicious but you just heard someone who was unrelenting While
1: this story is a pursuit of the truth, there is a romantic aspect of the shoe-leathered, grizzled journalist, the arbiter of all right and just. But this, this ended in a vicious death, a death that not only rocked Arizona, but rocked our country at the time. The Don Bull story is an outlier. It's an oddity.
0: Because it's such a rare occurrence, This did become a national story. I mean, Walter Cronkite reported it that that evening. Uh, The president of the United States was sending condolence letters. This became a national story. It's not often that a reporter would die in the line of duty sounds like almost too high (laughs) pollutant, but I mean, that that someone would attack a reporter seemingly for the job they were doing. This wasn't a, a reporter who died there's a Don Bolles's picture hangs on our wall in the newsroom. And next to him was another reporter named Charles Thornton who died in Afghanistan while reporting a story. And that type of journalism death is more common that you as a reporter or as a as a photographer go somewhere dangerous. Yeah, this is unique in that you s- seemingly right away I mean this This was not an accident. there was a, a Spanish language reporter in Los Angeles who police shot with a a, a gas canister um, and the police said it was accidental. some people say it wasn't but right like that you know that could have been not on purpose. Uh, this was a bombing under a car in central Phoenix. Someone wanted to send a message this was purposeful and deliberate and that someone would do it to a newspaper reporter showed that they were doing it probably for what he had written about
1: as we start to get into the many layers of who killed Don Bowles and why it starts to spiral into a world of characters and misinformation Is almost too complicated to even follow. But with any investigation, you gotta start with a name. A name that came out of Dom Bowles' dying mouth as he was lying on the pavement after his car was bombed. That name was John Adamson.
0: Obviously, John Adamson was easy as a suspect. Uh, You know, when I talked to the police detective who worked on the case, he said, "You know, bulls' words, John Adamson, Mafia, Emprise. says, well, mafia, you know, what do we do? Just round up every mafia person that is suspected of being organized crime or you know we can't yeah, that's no good. Emprise, hundreds of employees, you know, who what does he what does he mean? And they knew that he had done stories about Emprise, but John Adamson, there's only a few John Adamsons in Phoenix, so they were able to narrow it down fairly quickly which person he was talking about. Uh, John Adamson was sort of a hood, small-time hood. He ran uh, some money-making schemes. He had a parking lot, and if you parked there and stayed over time, he'd boot your car and charge you money to, to take it off, you know, so you didn't have to go through the he was just a guy who was pulling small-time schemes he was also someone that you could come to if you needed something done you know maybe there's some 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 troublesome person in your life you'd like to have uh, something awful happen to them he could set he could
1: arrange that for you biggest obstacle in reinvestigating this story is most of the people are dead maybe they've been murdered committed suicide or are scared there was one individual who's still around who knows it all who knows where the proverbial bodies are buried he knows who is lying and who is telling the truth and he knows exactly who killed Don Bowles